there is regularity and law and that we're all part of it in a sort of beautiful way, in a highly interrelated and interconnected way mm. to the same sets of laws and the same kinds of principles, it does give a sense of purpose. Hello, and welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we speak with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I was excited to speak with Jeffrey West, who's a British theoretical physicist and former president and distinguished professor of the Santa Fe Institute, which is the world's leading research center for complex systems science. He's a leading scientist working on a scientific model of cities and, amongst other things, has shown that when you double the size of a city, salaries and productivity per capita will increase by 15%. Jeffrey previously worked at Stanford University and the Los Alamos National Laboratory. He's also author of a fantastic book called Scale, The Universal Laws of Life and Death in Organisms, Cities and Companies which formed the basis of this conversation and is highly recommended. It's well worth checking out his TED Talk and some of the other articles and links that I share in the episode description, which outlines the basic idea that Jeffrey outlines in his book and that we build upon in our conversation. We talked about how and why organisms, cities and companies are similar in terms of how they scale. I also asked Jeffrey, why do organisms and companies die but cities don't? We went on to think about whether social networks are the new cities, and what about the role of countries. And lastly, we discussed the limits of his model of scaling and how it has affected his worldview. So I started out by asking him how and why all organisms are similar in the way that they grow and scale. Enjoy! The one thing that all organisms have in common regardless of their evolutionary history, is we're all network systems. When you think of yourself, the way you actually function, you are a bunch of networks because you have 10 trillion cells and they have to be fed in some democratic, efficient way. And so networks, obviously, are the mechanism by which that happens, the flows of information and energy. So the idea was the kind of generic mathematics and physics inherent in these networks. One crucial aspect of it is a huge assumption, and that is that the evolutionary processes of natural selection implies in it that there's been this continuous kind of positive feedback in terms of those that, you know, you adjust to the externalities and um, those that can adjust best can reproduce more are going to win. So that gets translated into the networks that have evolved are the ones that have somehow optimized in some way, in some rough sense, approximate sense. So that, what, just a simple example, you've doubled the length of the fifth branch of your arterial system, your heart would have to work harder. But if you halved it, it would also have to work harder. And if you, so in other words, any change that you made to this extraordinary network that's inside of you 
actually you have to work harder. So you're sitting in this sort of basin. Believe it or not, from that you derive these laws. It's amazing. Yeah. So when you started out this work 20 years ago, was your assumption that these sort of efficiently optimized networks were the reason for this very kind of regular scaling? Or was that something that you discovered along the way? I would say, no, that was not in my mind. That evolved once the calculations have been done, lots and lots of discussions with my colleagues and so on, Mm. before it all sort of congealed into a bunch of rather simple principles. So, um, and, and the idea, by the way, just to make that even more explicit, is that you know, the reason that you would optimize and how it's connected to natural selection is that you want to minimize the amount of energy that you have to expend on just the process of living and staying alive so that you can maximize the amount of energy you devote to reproduction, to sex and reproduction and the rearing of your offspring in order to propagate your genes. That makes sense. For me, the leap then from organisms to cities and companies, which I know happened later, but that's not immediately obvious, partly because cities and companies have huge amounts of inefficiency and redundancy (laughs) within the networks within a city, for instance. So those things seem contradictory somehow, and yet they're part of the same story that you're telling in your book. Let me back off just a little bit. So in biology, this theory that was developed, this network theory, which was developed, then explained not just the scaling law and metabolic rate, but all the scaling laws. And it explains it, but it explains it in a way that's different than in physics, because in physics, we have, you know, we have the idea of Newton's laws and Maxwell's equations and Einstein's theory and so on. And in a certain sense, these are thought of as precise. I mean, my God, we wouldn't be communicating like this if we didn't understand those laws. That is not the character of these laws. These laws are what we call coarse-grained, so that the scaling laws say that, yes, these animals, say the mammals again, scale from the shrew to the whale, but only at the sort of 80-90% level. So, I mean, just to give you an obvious example, noses don't scale in a regular fashion. I mean, they probably do to some extent, but an elephant is a huge outlier, enormous outlier. On the other hand, that plays a very small role in the entirety of thinking about organisms. It is important if you're interested in details of the respiratory system, but in terms of the overall life history and functioning of an organism, it's a tiny piece. And so there are inefficiencies in biology too, but they play a secondary role. So what you learn from this, this assumption of uh, optimization, so to speak, uh, minimization of energy loss, for example, plays a overwhelmingly predominant role. Mm. Now I'm going to use that to talk about cities. First of all, you have to recognize that we are talking about different timescales as well. We as organisms have evolved over a, a couple of billion years, and even as an individual species, millions of years. Cities have only been around hundreds of years. I mean, some have been around thousands, but most have been around probably hundreds. And so, you know, the forces at work, if there are forces at work optimizing, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, they're still very much at work. And it takes a long time to change things. You know, I mean, one of the problems for cities is that once you've built infrastructure, 
it don't change much. It's, you know, it's enormous cost to change all the roads or all the buildings, obviously. So, you know, there's a long persistence time uh, once you've got something in place. Secondly, the question is, what is it that's being optimized? And where do those scaling laws in cities come from? What are the analogs? So first of all, in many ways, cities are like organisms because you think of the roads and the electrical lines and the water lines and so on, all the transport phenomena. You know, it's just like inside you and me. And uh, so they're not so different. That's sort of the uninteresting part because the only reason they're there is to facilitate social interaction, is to bring people together in order to interact, create new ideas, innovate, create wealth, to improve standards and quality of life. That's what this extraordinary machine that we've invented is. So what is it that we could possibly be optimizing in that process? Two or three things come to mind. One is many ways a city has evolved so that you can go from A to B in the fastest possible way. That's how roads, you know, that's how those networks evolve. So you get from, get to the center as quickly as possible. So they have this sort of branching network going out just like we have from our heart. So that might be one, one optimization one might like to try to impose. Another one might be that it's a city evolved so as to maximize social interaction because that's what it's there for. So indeed it creates, you know, not just formal places like theaters and lecture halls and sports stadiums for bringing people together. I mean, some of it might be for mundane pointless, useless things, which I enjoy very much, like watching football games, but some might be for much more profound things like hopefully universities and lecture halls and uh, cultural centers and so on. So it does that. It also has, just in terms of its design, create spaces, parks and squares and, and so on. And cities that have been most successful and the most exciting are ones that do that best. I mean, that's one of the reasons New York is maybe the greatest city in the world. And uh, one of the reasons London has gone from being a boring place to become much more interesting in the last 30, 40 years, because I think there's been a greater emphasis on that. The other thing that's probably at work is greed. That is, in a certain sense, in terms of that social network, in many ways, each person wants more. But that is the origin of, again, those um, scaling laws, but built into those indeed are greater if inefficiencies. As you point out, there are inefficiencies that haven't been long enough for the system to really reach some better equilibrium. But also it means, and that's what the data shows, that when you plot the graph of these scaling laws, you will see many more, much more variants in the graph. And that's what you do see than you do in biology. No, that's interesting. I hadn't got that. So one of the things that you talk about in your book is that organisms and companies die eventually. So they scale, they grow, but then uh, they don't last forever. So I was just kind of curious a little bit if you could expand on why that is. Have we just not got there in the life cycle of cities yet? Or is there something different about the way that organisms and companies scale versus the way that, that cities do? Yes. So that's a very good question. It is, again, a major point of the book, actually, is that even though mathematically and in terms of this network structure that pervade organisms, cities, and companies, they're all based on that. That's their kind of commonality. The dynamics of those networks, the topology and geometry of those networks are different in each case. 
And that manifests itself in uh, the different ways in which they, those entities scale. That dynamics is manifestation of what the functionality of you know, a company is versus a city versus an organism. They have obviously very different functionalities, even though they do have uh, significant commonalities. So one of the things I didn't say about organisms that pervades them is that this efficiency, so that leads to something we call sublinear scaling, which means that if you took the most naive level, you said double the size of an organism, double the number of cells. No, you only have to go by 75%, which is less than 100%. And that's what the sublinearity means. You don't scale as fast as you would if you went up just linearly a doubling with every double size. So uh, that pervades biology almost. All, all the scaling laws have this kind of economy of scale built into them. When you double the size of a city, or if you look at a city that's twice the size of another within the same urban system, then you don't need twice as many roads, twice the length of all the roads. You only need, it turns out, 85%. So there's this kind of 15% saving with every doubling. And that's true of all infrastructure. And by the way, it's true across the globe, which is sort of amazing. It sort of has a yeah. universal character, this 15% saving on all infrastructure with every doubling of size. But the most interesting part of a city that I try to emphasize is its socioeconomic activity, because that's really what it's about. That has a very different character and something you don't see in biology. And that comes about from the following. When you bring people together and you talk and you have this conversation and you build on each other, Typical conversations are ones that build, there's positive feedback continuously. Now, yep. that's happening continuously in cities. And the city is, from this viewpoint, the whole point of a city is to encourage that and to facilitate that. And so there's this positive feedback. Of course, the overwhelmingly vast majority of those conversations are pointless and useless for most other people. But that very process every once in a while produces the theory of relativity or produces an Amazon. That's what a city does and that's what those social networks are doing. And that leads to something different in terms of its scaling because the positive feedback leads to something called superlinear scaling, meaning that the bigger you are, instead of having less per capita, the bigger you are, you now have more per capita. So the bigger the city, the more interactions there are per capita, Therefore, the more ideas per capita, therefore, the more patents produced per capita, therefore, the more crime per, per capita, the more disease per capita, and so on and so forth. Mm. So much better to be in a big city if you want buzz and activity and ideas and culture and, and so on, more job opportunities, but much worse to be in a big city during a pandemic for exactly the <laughs> same reason. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about how the pandemic has affected your <laughs> your your theory, but um, maybe come on to that. Uh, so you talk about companies becoming more multidimensional as they scale. Yes. So once they've all got the basic infrastructure and resources and gas stations and, and supermarkets and hospitals and schools and everything that they need, then new niches that there's capacity to accommodate that in a, in a bigger city in the way that there might not be in a in a smaller city. So, and you you touched upon it briefly in your previous answer around fractal dimensionality. I love that that exploration in your book. I wonder if you can try and describe yeah. what that means. That's kind of squeezing another dimension within within the networks. So, at the, at the sort of broadest level, 
uh, everybody recognizes a fractal, even though they may not call it that, because everybody's familiar with looking at a tree. And, and one's very familiar that if you cut off a branch, a, a small branch, and you take it away from the tree, it looks like a little tree. And in fact, it is. It's just like a little tree. And so the tree is sort of self-replicating. It's, yeah. uh, we call that self-similarity. That's a common property of, of biology. You're, if you were to tear open your insides and look at all your network, almost all of them have this property. Your circulatory system and your lungs look very much like trees. And we, are, we use the phrase tree, in fact, to describe them. And so it is, if, I, if you looked at maps of traffic flows in cities, if you look at volume flows of traffic in cities, they look just like trees or like rivers, you know, river systems. Um, these things branching into smaller and smaller bits, ending up with little tributaries and so on. So that is a common feature. One of the other common features is also what we call scale invariance, that it looks the same. So if you took that piece of tree that you cut off and you sort of took a photograph of it and you blew it up to the size of the big tree, sort of what that really means is that you couldn't tell the difference between the two. People have done that, by the way, with broccoli. You know, you take off a little chunk of bro broccoli, it looks like the big broccoli. And the question you've asked about the dimensionality is yeah. a very intriguing one because we, you know, we normally think of dimensionality as, you know, we live in three dimensions, up, down, and sideways kind of thing. The thing that's interesting about the dimensionality of fractals is they behave as if they have another dimension. And that dimension is sort of not usually not a complete dimension. That's what's so weird about it. They have what's called a fractional dimension, but it really comes about from the, the concept that if I take a square and I double its size, the area goes up by a factor of four, two squared. And if you took a cube and you double the size of each link, it goes up by a factor of eight, two cubed. And that cubed and that square are actually the dimensionality. And so the way the word dimensionality entered into fractals was because if you scale up a fractal object, even though it's in three dimensions, if you change every length by a factor of two, actually the volume inside it would be bigger than eight. So it's, it's really a reflection of scaling. And all these objects, whether your body, I mean, your various networks inside you, mm. the networks inside cities, whether they are um, the infrastructural ones or the ones that you don't see, namely the social networks, or inside a company, in terms of its networks, its social networks, in terms of its hierarchy, for example, they all have this property. So if you looked at a square area of a city and you doubled its size, you don't get sort of four times as many roads, for example. It doesn't simply scale in this linear way. That's sort of the essence of fractality that effectively sort of adds a piece of a dimension and the thing that's amazing about much of life, it adds a whole dimension. That's a way of understanding where this number four comes from. That is, there's three dimensions of the space that we fill with our networks. I mean, your circulatory system has to go everywhere inside you, and that's a three-dimensional space. But it's got this extra fractal property 
And that adds another dimension. And that is the number four. You mentioned social networks a moment ago. Two questions. One is you didn't extrapolate on in your book from cities to countries. And I was just wondering whether you've thought about yeah. that or if you've done that work. There was something, and it's, it's inhibited working on countries for me. We, I have worked on it. And that's because cities are organic. I mean, they, they grow naturally in a certain sense anyway. But countries are fake. You know, they're not, the, the boundary of a country is sort of to some extent arbitrary. And as an entity, they tend to be arbitrary. Funnily enough, it's been on the back burner to look in more detail at countries for a long time. So it's, um, it probably deserves much more attention than I've been willing to give it. The point is that if you start dealing with countries, you have so many more outliers. It's, uh, you know, take a country like Poland, which must be a great example of a country that's gone from, you know, those boundaries are sort of almost continuously changing. You go, you know, if you look over the last 500 years, it's much harder. And it's not always clear, you know, to what extent a country is at the most coarse grain level, we consider a city or an organism as roughly homogeneous. But countries, you know, are much more varied, typically. I think that distinction between cities are biological and, and countries are arbitrary kind of, yeah, makes sense to me, though intuitively it feels like there is an analysis because you know countries are a form of social interaction at, at an even more meta scale so so some Absolutely. of these principles ought to apply no we've done some and, of it and, and it's been quite encouraging but it's also yeah. you have to start looking much more carefully at the outliers and the exceptions yeah yeah i see i see so i mean you mentioned social networks in passing a moment ago uh I'm just curious whether social networks are the new cities or, or what are your reflections about the social interaction online and how that scales and maybe how that's different to, to what you've talked about in your book, which is more focused on the biological and the, the physical. One of the things you have to address that is beyond biology is that cities are the integration and the tension between the infrastructural networks and on the other the social network that sits on them. Yeah. Those two have to be completely integrated because you have to recognize that it doesn't matter how sophisticated your form of interaction is through the internet, you have to be somewhere. Uh, but also, you have to be moving. You have to go from A to B. You have to take your kids swimming. You have to go to your office. You have to go to school. You want to go to the theater. So that's crucial to um, understand that. And it has all these marvelous implications, and we have some of which we haven't talked about, like the growth yeah. arises yeah. from that positive feedback uh, mechanism and the superlinear behavior, mm. the social network side of things. But you know that is constrained, as I said, by the fact that you have to be someplace. Now, if you don't have to be someplace to interact, which has happened during this past year, how does that change things? Maybe uh, you know that changes everything. Now, I can tell you. The, the data that we have looked at in the past for things like the number of users or the number of interactions on social network platforms as a function of size of communities, it scales just like everything else, this 15%. I mean, it looks, you wouldn't know that people were interacting via social media. 
So what I have concluded, I've gone back and forth on this, frankly. When I first thought about it some years ago, I thought, wow, that's really going to change things. And then as I thought more about it, I realized the only thing that is going to change is what major innovations have always done in the past, speed everything up. That is, the sort of fundamentals don't change much, but everything gets faster. And uh, that's what happened with the invention of the steam engine, which allowed people to move from A to B much faster and over distances that were inconceivable. And then the telephone. The telephone was probably more profound in terms of a change than the internet because, you know, before the invention of the telephone, you had to... um, you had to wait several hours, if not at least one day, to communicate yeah. a letter and across to another country, sometimes weeks or even months. And suddenly, you could do it instantaneously. Never happened uh, before. Yeah. So it was a shift from uh, asynchronous communication to synchronous communication. That's yeah. right. Instantaneous. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. wasn't very long. You know, it was, wasn't very long before you could do that across the Atlantic. I, I absolutely loved your book. I thought it was really wonderful. I'm curious how your model of scaling is wrong. I'm very drawn to these grand unifying theories. Yeah. Um, so th- th- there's limits to uh, sure. you know the extrapolation you can make. I've always been drawn to these kinds of ideas. That is, I mean, that's why I became a physicist, because physics sort of suggested that there were universal principles. Who could believe that Newton's laws apply not just to a horse and cart, or walking, but actually applied to the Earth and the Moon and the Sun and all the planets and the rest of the universe. Kind of, I mean, that's sort of mind blowing. You know, that kind of universality. Sort of, it's along the way. I felt life seems sort of pointless, but maybe the point is to understand, to see how things are interconnected. And so, that's been sort of my passion is to look for and be intrigued by the interconnectedness among things and the commonalities. And uh, what I tried to do here was to take some of that paradigm into biology and now into sort of social organization. But um, indeed, two things are correct that you said. One is it can be dangerous if you don't recognize there are limits. And secondly, which is associated with that, is of course all models and all theories presumably are ultimately wrong. There are limits. And one of the things that one likes to spend time thinking about are what are the limits. And that's one reason I said earlier that the philosophical basis of what I'm doing is somewhat different than physics. It is physics. I consider it physics, actually. Mm. But it's not like Newton's laws. Even with the domain of classical physics where Newton's laws work, We know there are limits to that, where there's quantum mechanics or relativity, but where it works, it's precise. But that, but these laws that I'm talking about, there's exceptions, outliers, there's fluctuations, there's stochastic processes at work. And so this is somehow in between, you know, something precise and something that's truly just a toy model. But you can see there are outliers and fluctuations, and one has to be um, cognizant of that. So that's one kind of but sort of limit. It's, it's, an, it's an emergent physics. It's the very nature of complexity, because yeah. one of the things that was swept under the rug, especially yeah. in physics, was complexity. There was this a naive idea 
which I certainly held without, you know, at a sort of unconscious level, that all you've got to know are the fundamental laws about quarks and gluons and string theory and so on and so forth. And then you build up, which I held and many physicists did hold and probably still do hold. And uh, one of the things that we learned is that highly complex phenomena, adaptive phenomena, evolving phenomena, Mm. all of life, and in fact, all the messiness that's on this planet, sure, it obeys the laws of physics, but the laws at work are what we call emergent laws. They're effective laws that are not fundamental, like Newton's laws, but are applied within a certain domain of parameters. And that's what Mm. these are. But even with that domain of parameters, there are, you know, things that are very difficult to take account of. But on the other hand, if you going to the city work, for example, mm. knowing, you know, what the coarse grain behavior of cities are within an urban system is extremely important for digging down deeper about, A, how does an individual city deviate from what it, quote, should be having in terms of its metrics? You know, you might be able to predict from these scaling laws, I'll make up some example. Uh, some city of uh, a population of 250,000 should have 147 police plus or minus some number. And in fact, it has, you know, only 112. You ask, well, why is that? You know, what is, you know, is it under, does it not have enough? And if you look at the crime, this is how many violent crimes it should have. You could predict from this, but how many does it actually have? So that is going to the heart of one kind of sense of limit of the theory. But there's another kind of boundary, so to speak. And that is, you know, when does the whole thing break down? Can you have a mammal smaller than a shrew and a mammal bigger than a whale? Well, you have to examine that and you can show where the theory breaks down, actually. One of the nice things about the theory of itself, it can tell you what its limits are. And in fact, in this case, it tells you that you can't have anything much bigger than a whale if it obeys these laws. And you can't have something much smaller than a shrew if it's a mammal. So you do have to examine limits. So your, your, the point is extremely well taken and is extremely important. It strikes me post-pandemic, post the financial crash of 2008, which I, th- I think we still haven't quite fully reconciled yes. what that means. We're sort of living in a, in a time where we're looking for new economic models, new social models in a, in a finite world um, when we've previously thought that growth and scale was, was infinite. And so it feels like your work is very salient and very relevant for that. You know, maybe, you know, the one thing that is really heavily interested in, very interested in and passionate about is in fact the limits that it says about cities and social interaction and organization and innovation. Because one of the things that says is that you can't continue this. I mean, if you take this theory to end, so to speak, it tells you that it won't, it can't sustain itself. And the, the point of what I show in the book in terms of the limits to the theory is, yes, you can do that, but all it does is postpone it because it speeds up the pace of life and you get faster and faster and you have to make such a major innovation faster and faster in a predictable way. And soon you get yourself to a kind of reductio ad absurdum situation where you're going to have to make a major innovation such as invention of the internet every year. So that can't be. So there's a limit. What does the system do to avoid that, you know, to to avoid the collapse? And it ain't just simple technological innovation, which is the naivete that dominates not just Silicon Valley, 
but all of economics, as far as I can tell. Well, I'm I'm fascinated by that, and and a lot of the work that I'm involved with uh, seeks to explore some of those themes. You you said briefly, if we could just finish on a kind of personal note, uh, yeah. you you commented in passing that you know life is kind of pointless, but I, but but and yet this, I just wonder whether. <laughs> discovering some of these these laws uh, has given you some meaning and purpose you know may, maybe instead of you know religion or other things that people would normally look to for for purpose in life yeah how, how do you relate to this just on your own kind of oh, personal goodness. individual uh, yeah I, that was a throw out comment of course yeah like, yes no of course uh, I, you know most of us are always looking for some meaning in life many of us find it in religion of some kind or in personal relationship and, and I'm, you know, very open to all of those. I participate, not religious particularly, but I do consider myself spiritual. I'm a great fan of Spinoza, God is nature kind of image. I don't know, it's a bit pantheistic, but some version of that. But uh, so there's that. And as part of that, I do think that doing work like this, trying to discover the regularities and the laws that seem to pervade um, across the extraordinary complexity of diversity of life around us, whether it's in the cosmos, but more so for me now in terms of, you know, just looking out the window, and it, which looks like a just arbitrary mess, you know, it's just arbitrary. And to discover that, in fact, there is regularity and law and that we're all part of it and that we're all sort of conforming in a sort of beautiful way, in a highly interrelated and interconnected way to the same sets of laws and the same kinds of principles is, uh, even if it is, as I say, coarse grade and there are limits, nevertheless, it does give, I, for want of a better phrase, a sense of purpose, so to speak. Yeah. That that's, you know, the idea that that's what we're here for, that we're here, you know, we're the reason that the electron can know itself. I mean, otherwise, no one knows itself. You know, we're the only ones that care. We're the only ones that have morals and ethics. The trees don't care. The animals, you know, the dogs don't care that people are being slaughtered in Syria or that there's going to be a drought. They only care because it will affect them. I mean, I love animals and I love nature. But, you know, they don't have this consciousness that we have evolved. I think um, its purpose is to understand that, is to understand and to bring ethics and morality to the universe. I know that. <laughs> but just uh, so, sort of the purpose is in the interconnections. It certainly strikes me that we're we're living through uh, some kind of phase transition. I don't yes. know what the next reality looks like, but it feels like the laws that you've written about and have worked upon point the way, at least uh, to, towards um, where we're going. And I'm, for, for that, I'm very grateful. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I do hope that in some very small way, what I've done contributes a little bit. But I agree with you. It's it, If it's a phase transition, but some change is occurring, there's no question. We're building up to something big. Thank you, Jeffrey. I really loved that conversation. And in particular, what he said about the fact that we are all just a bunch of networks. Cities are all about people and social interaction. And lastly, it's the interconnections that give him and us purpose, which I felt was a very Buddhist worldview. So please do check out the links in the episode description for a lot more information and background about Jeffrey and his work. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. 
Thank you to all of our community members, clients, partners, and patrons. For more information about Liminal, please check out www.weareliminal.co. And I'd be really grateful if you could like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with other people who you think might enjoy it as well. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.